have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. You're listening to Aerial View on WFMU East Orange and worldwide on the internet at WFMU.org. Hey, it's me, Chris T., with part two of my sit-down with Dr. Thomas Azalini. It's the Aerial View Podiatry Cast, for real. Well, you know, I found myself getting pretty depressed when I, I had to, you know, buckle down and think about getting the surgery, because it had occurred to me that, you know, I've been overweight a great deal of my life, and I started to really go into, like, a self-blaming mode. I started thinking, well, I've done this to myself, you know. 
And I, I think I had a talk with you at some point to ask, you know, like, was this something that was genetic that I really, the two things kind of interacted? Because I remember as a kid, I didn't want to be on my feet all that much because my feet gave me pain. Is it just a vicious cycle that people get locked into and that the pain keeps them from doing the kind of movement that would help them, you know, stay in shape? And so they sit around and as they're sitting around, they're probably eating and it's just... Yeah, yeah. This system that becomes, you know, polluted. I mean, I don't even think we need to tell people that. I think yeah. it's pretty obvious in all our lives that it's really easy to let one problem, you know, lead you to be inadequate in doing something else. And then that feeds on something else. And, you know, you really to try to keep a positive direction and a positive momentum, uh, you know, really is extremely beneficial. Mm. And I mean, like you are a prime example, right? So you came into us and your primary concern in your mind was that you had deep ankle pain Mm. Um, and you know with all the testing we did certainly we found you know some arthritic changes in your ankle we talked to you about the possibility of having you an ankle joint implant at some point right but after we took care of the underlying foot issues even maybe more so than I had expected a lot of your ankle pains disappeared yeah so I noticed a distinct difference between the left foot and the right foot because I know that the issue that I was having is sometimes if I was on my feet all day, I, I couldn't get out of bed the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, it would take me half of the day to be able to get out of bed and stand up without pain. Yeah. So, you know, I notice now that that's not the issue. The mm-hmm. right foot, it's still an issue, obviously, but the left foot, it's it's not. Well, that's, you know, you talk about, you know, that, that kind of downward spiral. So, so a lot of these problems lead to what we call post-static dyskinesia. So if you have tendonitis, uh, if you have ligamentous strain, if you have arthritic changes, and you do activity, uh, usually when you go into a period of rest, whether it's to sit around and watch TV for a couple hours, or especially when you sleep tonight, when you get up the next day, you have a lot of stiffness and pain. And so when people try to be active and they have these underlying problems, you know, they feel like they're being punished for even attempting. Mm. So it's really important that when they, you know, when you, when you make a plea to a patient to become more active, that you give them the tools to be able to do that in such a way that it's a positive experience. So I'm glad to hear you say that because you know a couple of years ago, I think it was uh, around you know after New Year's, I said to myself, I'm going to join a gym. You know, damn it, I'm going to join a gym. And I joined this gym near where I work, and I went there, and this guy put me through this procedure that just beat the hell out of my feet and my ankles. I, I, he didn't know he was doing it, but what he decided to do with me that day had me jumping up and down on these boxes and doing all this stuff where for the next three days I couldn't walk properly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it just said to me, I'm not going back to that gym. I can't, right. you know, and I gave up on the whole idea. And you like, feel defeated. You know, I felt, I mean, if he had put me on a bike maybe and mm-hmm. let me pedal for a while, yeah. if he had even put me on a treadmill, but instead, you know, he was, and I, you know, I just, I just decided I can't go through this. You yeah. know, I'm not going to do this. Mm-hmm. I would imagine this is fairly common. Uh, it's very you know? common. Yeah. You know, it's very common. And I mean, like, you know, I've been through some health issues. I had a knee injury and different things where I've had a rehab. But knowing what's going to happen, you know, having the knowledge allowed me to say, well, I know I'm going to be sore tomorrow. So, you know, I'm going to ice down today and maybe I need to take it a little easy. Maybe I need to talk to my therapist about the fact that this particular thing we're doing, like it's causing more pain. I think I'm, it's pushing me backwards. But I have the knowledge. Patients don't have that knowledge. So, you know, one of your jobs as a, as a physician is it's not, it doesn't end when you leave the OR. 
uh, and it doesn't lead, it doesn't begin when you walk into the OR. It begins when you first start to talk and evaluate to the patient, and it doesn't end until you've gotten them through a point of rehab where what you've done for them uh, has reached fruition. Yeah. So you know it's really important, and and again, we're in a healthcare system where to keep any type of economic stability in, in, your, in your practice, in your life as a physician, you're being forced to be, quote unquote, more efficient, more productive. You know, nice catchwords for pump more patients through your office as fast as you can, because mm-hmm. we're gonna pay you less and less and less for them. While the insurance companies make $45 billion a year and take that 33.5% or whatever it is out of the premium, that provides absolutely no care. Um, you know, you're being asked to Where see, is that 33% going? Is that just to the, to the... You know, it goes a lot to the fact that, that for them to deny your patient's care, for them to deny that MRI, for them to make you go through all kinds of hoops to get uh, procedures or testing, they need an army of people pushing mm-hmm. paper around, making phone calls, doing reviews... Uh, you know, and this is this whole idea of managed care where, we, where we've assumed that physicians are, number one, incapable, and number two, not moralistic enough to make proper decisions for their patients that are in their best interest. So part of that was brought upon by the medical profession themselves, by being greedy and by maybe overutilizing certain things that made money. Um, and certain things do need to be policed, but probably not by the people who have a vested financial interest in denying care. Right. So, you know, this is how it works as a doctor in the United States. You provide for insurance company X, and you do surgery on patient Y, and you go to insurance company X, and you say, you know, you only paid me for one of the three procedures I did because uh, you said that I happen to be at the, in the OR at the same time, so you, you saw no reason to pay me for those other procedures. So you disagree with them. So who do you get to um, plead your case to? A doctor who works for the insurance company, and they do all these different internal reviews, but at the end of the day, they're judge and jury. You know, state insurance um, agencies or, or, or departments that are supposedly overseeing these um, insurance companies, they have no teeth. They have almost no ability to affect that change. Mm. Insurance companies, you know, we talk about, you know, uh, certain industries that are exempt from lawsuits. Well, you, it's very difficult for a patient to sue uh, an insurance company for denying care. Mm. So they have no real incentive to not deny care. They want to deny care. Because they know... They seem to have an incentive to deny care. Oh, they have a total yeah. incentive. And, and, and not only that, it's backed up for them statistically. I mean, they look at numbers and they say, if we deny 100 procedures, out of those 100 procedures, a large portion, maybe 30, 40 of them, won't even be reviewed. The doctor doesn't have the time. The patient doesn't have the wear to all. So they won right there, those 30, 40 procedures they didn't pay for. And then the ones that are reviewed... Most of the time, the physician and the patient only have so much time and effort to put into fighting that decision. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a, there's a great vested interest in them providing you, you know, talking a great game about how they manage care, but provide you with as little care. The other big game is to sell pay people insurance plans that allow them to have 
out-of-network care. So if you're a company and you want to get a more Cadillac plan for your employees, one of the things these educated employees are going to ask you is, the plan that you're going to provide me with, if I don't want to stick in that network because I have a serious condition and I want to be able to cast the net and find a doctor that I feel is best to treat me, do I have out-of-network privileges? Yeah, we, we got you a plan that has out-of-network privileges. But how did they get that plan? Well, they paid the insurance companies additional premiums. But for we as the physicians, when we have a patient that we want to bring someplace that's out of network to a facility or we're not in that network, they do everything they can to deny the patient the ability to access that out of network care. And if I'm a provider for an insurance company and I'm in network, but I want to bring the patient to a facility that's out of network that's willing to accept what is considered usual and customary payment for that care, again, decided by the insurance companies, they'll do everything they can to convince the patient that that's not in their best interest and to convince the doctor that if you keep doing that, you're not, you may not be providing for us anymore. So, so they want it both ways. They yeah. want to sell people with this idea that they're going to give them this additional ability to see patients out of their network, but behind the scenes, they're doing everything they can to stop the patients from doing that. It seems to me also the center of trust has shifted because it used to be with, with the physician. And now it, you're, the insurance company is saying, trust us. Oh, yeah. no, the trust is with us. No, absolutely. So. And, and, and I mean, again, unfortunately, part of this um, is the fault of physicians. But I think that it's incredibly magnified. You know, they, they use examples of the bad apples to try to say the whole system is dysfunctional and every doctor out there is just out to do everything they can to you to make money. Um, well, for years we've heard that they ordered too many tests and the tests are unnecessary. That was one of the criticisms. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, then you have the, the other side of the coin with, you know, you're an internist in an emergency room and someone comes in and they have a condition where, you know, you're going to run a certain level of testing on them. But maybe there's a couple of tests that are somewhat on the fence how necessary they are. But you have in the back of your head that there's some trial lawyer sitting someplace mm -hmm. that if you don't order that test, they're not going to want to hear about or neither is the court or that patient going to want to hear about that you were trying to do the right thing for the society by not overutilizing tests. What they're going to want is they're going to want a payday because you didn't order that one test, even though it may have, you know, from a statistical standpoint, not been in the best public interest for you to order that test on people with their set of circumstances. Um, so, you know, doctors have a lot of forces that shape their decisions. And unfortunately, we've created a system where a lot of those forces are not positive forces. Well, how do you find your satisfaction then to keep doing what you're doing? Because you could go swim with whales if you really well, wanted I mean, to. Look, uh, you know, for one thing, this is what I've been trained to do. So any thought of me doing something else at 54 years old uh, is real difficult. Uh, so, I mean, that's the reality. I'm not going to, you know, sit on my right. high horse and say, well, it's because it's, you know, so fulfilling. Uh, but, I, you know, I take great satisfaction in the work that I do. Uh, I try to do it at a level of expertise that I'm ever trying to improve upon. Uh, I really, really enjoy training a whole new generation of ankle surgeons. Yeah, a lot uh, of what you do is teaching, right? We hadn't talked about yeah, that Yeah, I mean, it, via V, my own work. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a residency director. So, you know, that involves uh, a lot of teaching, didactic teaching, 
a lot of teaching in the OR uh, on patients. You know, they're there with you, treating patients with you. Mm-hmm. That's how doctors learn. Uh, you know, that's another thing the public's become really, really um, acute in on. You know, doctor, is that resident going to do any of the work on my case? Well, you're going to want him as a doctor five years from now out in private practice if we never let him touch a patient while he was a resident under supervision when you're protected because you have an expert there watching him work. So, you know, everybody wants what's best for them, mm-hmm. and that's totally understandable. But to create a system that works <laughs> for the long haul, uh, you know, there there's certain compromises that you make for the public good. But, but going back to me, I mean, I, I'm... I really do love what I do. Uh, I just don't always love having to deal with the system. Um, I've been, I think, very fortunate. I haven't talked to a doctor yet who does. I mean, I feel like, you know, there was kind of a deal with the devil made many years ago. I still remember 20 years ago someone saying something to me about HMOs and saying it's kind Mm -hmm. of the beginning of the end, you know? so. Well, it's really interesting because when Hillary started down that road uh, with Bill uh, in terms of trying to reform the healthcare system, yeah, she really made a huge mistake in my mind when she kind of locked herself in the room with a bunch of very intelligent people, but who were basically policy wonks and really didn't include the medical community and kind of decided how they were going to reform medicine without talking to the people that actually provide care. So when it failed, what she did was she opened the eyes of insurance companies. Because at first, when they first started to hear about things like HMOs and things like that, like they weren't on board with that either. But then a light bulb went off and they are like, God, this is a way for us to control things. Mm. We can control the flow of care. Who can provide the care? We can set up networks of doctors who are willing to play by our rules. Um, and they just ran with the ball. And it forever changed medicine. You know, it, I, may have been I, coming, I don't, it may have been coming anyway, but that really, really changed things. Right I don't remember if I told you this, but I, you know, when I first moved to New Jersey, uh, there were some friends I made... Um, up at, a, up at a call center in Dumont, New Jersey, and I uh, and there was this a woman and her two kids, you know, and um, this woman became kind of like a mother figure to me, you know. I, I would go over their house all the time. I would her her son and daughter were like my age. We got became very friendly. Um, she eventually went to work for Blue Cross Blue Shield, and uh, and she used to tell me about you know she would get home at the end of the day after essentially saying to people. Uh, no, you can't have that life-saving procedure. We're not going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And she eventually had to retire. She said, I can't do this anymore. I can't just be this person. And this was a room full of people, obviously, like her, who were trained. You know, they weren't doctors you know, or anything. They were basically trained how to break it to people that mm-hmm. they were not going to be getting that operation, mm-hmm. that we're not paying for it. Right. You know? and, and it's just... <laughs> She was devastated enough to where she said, "I don't need to work anymore, really, if I don't want to. So I'm not gonna, right. I'm not gonna do this anymore." And yeah. I, I just find that whole idea just bleak, beyond bleak. And you know, it, it's funny because when you look at the way these uh, insurance plans, or the way our government, via Congress, even via the executive branch, kind of roll out experts to, to talk about managed care, to talk about. Uh, health information systems, which is a whole other topic we probably should talk about a little bit. And they roll out people from the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic. And they they take these examples of these incredibly wealthy hospitals. It's like comparing Harvard to like uh, a city university in like, you know, Florida or something. Mm. Um, And, you know, these incredibly wealthy uh, institutions, they have the money 
to implement these incredible integrated healthcare systems, which in their little ecosystem work well. And then you get the CEOs or the founders of those systems come out and basically say, this is, this is how medicine should be rolled out to the rest of the country. But it's not practical. It's not feasible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not economically viable. But they've sold the policymakers and they've sold an image that they want to create because what's going to happen? <laughs> they're, going to, they're going to be at the head of the spear you know, as the experts that get to advise and control like that. And I think they really believe. I'm not saying they're being disingenuous, mm-hmm. but I just don't think it's realistic. So, so I think, you know, when you look at the healthcare system, you, you don't just think about how you do it as a, at a top flight hospital in Chicago or, or, or some major metropolitan area. You have to look at how it works throughout the whole country. Um, and I think that that's caused a lot of problems. I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Azzolini of Hoboken, and uh, my next surgery is scheduled for Friday, May 6th. And is it going to be essentially the same thing that was done on the left foot, but just in, you know, mirror image of? Or is there other factors? And we should probably say to people what that was. It was called a triple orthodesis. And what is that exactly? So so it will be much the same. I mean, uh, your foot deformities are fairly symmetrical, you know, from side to side. And a triple orthodesis, you have three major joints, uh, one in your rear foot and two in your midfoot, uh, that control a tremendous amount of the motion uh, of the midfoot and rear foot. Uh, and in patients like yourself, they've been malaligned to such a degree that you're bearing weight improperly on your foot, you're overstressed both ligamentous structures and tendinous structures. So what we're trying to do in this patient population is to bring the foot, the rear foot and the midfoot back into proper alignment so that it gives you a weight-bearing platform that's much more functional. It gets your weight to be centered more directly over your foot, directly under your ankle, takes stresses off those ligaments and tendons. And in a case like you where these malalignments have gone on for so long, there are secondary arthritic changes of these joints that any thought of doing what we talked about earlier, like bone grafting that we do in a child to realign your foot, um, even if we were able to achieve the realignment, you probably still would have a tremendous amount of pain because those joints that are involved are not that functional anymore. Um, uh, so that's basically what we're doing. And in your case in particular, your, uh, which is not unusual with an adult flat foot, your forefoot has what we call abducted, which means it's moved away from the midline and it's pointing outward. So if people were to watch you walk, you, as, they, as you're walking towards them, your feet are pointed to the outside and your arch has flattened, uh, your ankle bulges in, your heel turns out. Uh, and that puts a tremendous amount of strain on all these structures we talked about. So when we correct your particular triple orthodesis, we're also going to put a graft on the outside of your foot in your midfoot that helps us to swing your foot back over to the midline. Um, so we don't want to just fuse you uh, in a rigid position that's the same position you're in now. We want to fuse you, but we want to fuse you with your foot in a much more functional position. And again, you know, when that's done and when it works, um, it's a salvage procedure because we, we're not restoring the function of those joints, but quite honestly, they're not functioning at this point anyway. Mm-hmm. But we're at least repositioning the foot in such a way that makes you as a whole, makes your gait and your ambulation um, much more functional. And again, in your case, also seems to have uh, addressed a lot of your ankle pain, uh, which um, was a real benefit. Hopefully that 
stays that way. It definitely has. I, you know, I, I flew it on Tuesday, um, and I had to again tell them I had metal in my foot. So can you describe for people listening what, what the metal is in there and why it was put in there? And So in, in, in your foot, um, we used a specialized stainless steel implants. Um, and we used a combination of implants. So when we fused your major rear foot joint between your heel, which is your calcaneus, and the bone that makes up your ankle, along with your two leg bones, which is called the talus, the joint between those two bones is called the subtalar joint. And we use something called a cannulated screw. And the beauty of this system is that we resect the joint surfaces, we realign the joint where we want it, and then we drive a guide wire across those joints. We take an x-ray intraoperatively, and if the joint's in proper alignment, and if that wire is sitting where it needs to be in the bone, then we can slip a hollow screw over that guide wire. And wherever that guide wire is, that's exactly where that screw is going to go. So when I first started training, um, cannulated screw sets were not the norm. They were just starting to come in uh, to play. So you would have to kind of freehand uh, you know, a drill hole. Uh, hoping that it was in proper alignment and then throw a solid screw down that hole to achieve your fixation. So the way that these screws work, you know, um, bone and joint surgery takes a lot of things from carpentry. Um, So what we do is we have a screw that purchases the heel uh, going through the talus, across the talus and into the heel bone And then as the head of that screw hits the talus, it actually pulls the talus towards the heel and clamps down and provides compression at that fusion site. For your midfoot, um, we use staple fixation. So used to be old orthopedic staples, you'd resect the joints again, you'd get in proper alignment. In your case, we'd be putting this bone graft on the outside of your, your foot. And we would basically hammer staples across that joint and just like a big paper staple, except obviously much more robust. And that would hold the joints in those alignments. Now we use staples that are called memory staples. So we put them in with the staples in effect sprung open. They go into those holes and as soon as they're released, they actually provide a clamping force. Um, so they're actually providing compression and that compression remains. So as you begin to heal, Uh, and maybe you get some bone resorption instead of getting a gap at that arthrodesis or fusion site, the staple actually continues to clamp down and hold it shut. So again, this is just kind of a a little bit of the type of things that I'm talking about in terms of the way the technology is uh, is racing along. A lot of these... It's also, I'm also thinking aerospace while you're talking about all this stuff. I mean, is this... Well, we have staples staples that are heat activated. Mm. We have staples that are pre-sprung. Uh, there's a, a substance called nitinol, uh, which uh, has characteristics where it can be in one shape at one temperature and a different shape at a different temperature. Uh, so some of these staples are put in uh, originating in a cold environment. And when they uh, are in your body, the heat of your body actually triggers a molecular reaction within the staple and causes it to change shape. Wow. And that causes the compression. So, yeah, it's 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 very it's very advanced technology yeah. as applied to reconstructive surgery. Oh, when I'm in the, uh, in the do you call it an operating theater or an operating room? What's the proper term? When, when well, I, operating room. Operating. Some of, some of would call them a theater. Too. Yeah, they're both proper terms. Is it is a difference in the theater? People are actually watching or students. Uh, yeah, I mean, in larger institutions, sometimes you can have uh, ORs which are set up with viewing 
um, above uh, the OR to actually view in. A lot of that is done now with uh, closed circuit cameras and yeah. stuff too. You don't really need to how, do. how many people are, are going to be, you know, worked on the last foot and, you know, generally what's your team size like? Well, usually you? we have the anesthesiologist. Uh, we have a circulating nurse who's an RN uh, who's responsible for doing a lot of the documentation. She's not scrubbed in sterilely, but she's getting stuff for the scrub team, opening up sterile packages for us to take stuff from her. You have a scrub tech who actually mans the instruments and passes things off to you. Uh, and then either you have just that and a surgeon working with that scrub tech uh, but I have the luxury of having these residents that I'm training. So usually, you know, one, two, sometimes even three in a big case like this will be assisting. Sometimes one will be back with that scrub tech, helping to set up a sequence of instruments for a particular implant we're putting in. Um, others may be re being retracting. Others may actually be participating in some of the actual surgery because surgery is a, is a group effort. Yeah. You know, when people ask, doctor, are you going to do the surgery yourself? Yes, I am going to do the surgery myself, but that doesn't mean I may not be holding a joint in a certain alignment I want, and I tell someone, you know, hammer that staple in, mm. because, you know, th that's how you get the best result. Um, so everything is focused as a team uh, to provide the patient with um, the best po possible care. Um, you don't want more people in the OR than you have to for infection uh, reasons. And then because we're such a well-known residency program, we also have externs who are fourth-year podiatric medical students who come and visit to observe uh, what we do, and they help. We have an actual uh, Hoboken University Medical Center. We have a podiatry clinic uh, that's on site uh, that's open every Monday and every Wednesday and every other Friday, and we see a whole manner of patients there from indigent uh, to people who are underinsured to people who have good insurance to hospital employees. Uh, and those students get to come in and participate in that care, you know, do history and physicals and workups. Again, it's a part of being part of the healthcare system, training people from the time they're in school to, you know, now you get to look at these people as pr prospective residents to being residents and working with you. And being in, colleagues. Yeah. Exactly. And in my program, like <clears throat> my associate, uh, Dr. Sheetal Sharma, who works in my Hoboken office, was my chief resident three or four years ago. Uh, she went out. She has a private office in Chelsea in Manhattan, uh, was working in Jersey City, and now we've decided to kind of merge together. Um, so, you know, these people are, go beyond just being people I teach. They go from residence to being the doc, you know, the next town over who's calling me, asking about advice about a case or showing up at one of our training sessions for the residents. So the residency has been uh, in place for almost 30 years. Mm. It's, you know, it really has a tremendous history. Actually, we went to the American College of Foot Surgeons seminar in Austin, Texas this year, and we had a small reunion. We got about 13, 14, you know, of the residents that were there for the seminar, decided to go. We got together, and it was just really great to see people, some of who graduated from my training 10 and 15 years ago, who's practicing in Arizona, who's in Chicago, who's in Georgia, um, you know, talking about the things they do, mm. uh, you know, and, you know, we really have a pretty prestigious lineage of people who have graduated from our program that now run foot and ankle centers of excellence in Virginia, in Georgia, doing extremely high level reconstructive work all the way up to and including total ankle joint replacement and everything in between. Um, so it's a it's a great thing. 
Um, I wanted to just ask, you know, before we, we, we wrap up, too, uh, I had a, a kind of a technical question, which is about the surgery that goes on and whether or not there's any vascular things that are happening. Are you having to to move blood vessels around or, or arteries around? And is there anything that has to be it, disconnected and reconnected, for not, lack of a better way of putting so it? Not so much or? disconnected and reconnected, but mm-hmm. we're constantly having to go through the soft tissue envelope. Mm -hmm. to get to the bone that we work on. So, you know, that's a big part of where the rubber meets the road in terms of the quality of the final result because if you just, you know, slash and burn to get down to the bone and you can do great bone work but you've caused vascular compromise, you've cut through nerves, uh, you've damaged other soft tissue structures, the bone may look good on x-ray again but you're not treating that x-ray and the post-operative result is not, you know, adherent to just how good that x-ray looks. Um, So we take great care in trying to preserve those structures, move them out of the way. Uh, And there are particular cases where knowing, going into the surgery, we know that a certain structure that is still functional will have to be sacrificed, and we'll explain that to a patient so they know that's a real possibility. Uh, But yeah, we we take great care in trying to, to handle the soft tissues um, with great respect because, you know, that's where you get your feeling from. You're not getting the feeling from your bone. You're getting the feeling from the ligaments and the tendons and all the, the rich neural supply that those structures have. So you have to be So careful. were you happy with the results of the first surgery? And I was. Yeah, I was okay. very happy. I mean, As you, know, am I. you know, the triple orthodesis, uh, it's a pretty consistent procedure. Uh, but sometimes we're doing it on a patient who has, you know, just arthritic changes. And really all we're trying to do is fuse the joints as they sit. Uh, you know, in your case, we're having to really manipulate and try to reshape your foot, so it's a lot more challenging. Um, and when using bone grafting materials, whether it's autogenic from the patient's own body or allergenic, you know, from a cadaver bone, um, you know, that adds another element that that bone has to take and resorb or be replaced. Um, and, uh, you know, so whenever you get to the point where you're several months down the road and you see, you know, no loss of correction, you don't see the implants, uh, or, or the, the fixation device is moving or backing out, uh, and you see a patient who's already, you know, regaining functional ability and, and having less pain, you know, you, that's a gratifying thing. So, I mean, for you especially, I think, and we've, you know, harped about this a few times now, uh, is the fact that, you know, you had such a decrease in your ankle joint pain. Because, I mean, if yeah. you remember, you know, we discussed doing this triple orthodesis as a precursor to realign your foot so you'd be able to have a successful ankle joint replacement. Right. Um, and now we may not have to do that. Yeah. So that's great. When you say may not, you mean ever or it may be something well, I, I mean, put it's off? Really, it's or? really dependent upon your symptoms. Right. Uh, you know, we're not going to do it. Again, you don't treat the x-ray. So, so one of the things I always take home, I remember having a lecture from an orthopedic surgeon who's primarily a knee specialist. And he said, you know, we just don't get it. He goes, uh, you know, we have patients that come in and we take an x-ray. And there's almost no joint space there. The joint looks horrible on x-ray. And, you know, they're, they're, they're functioning. They're maybe even playing some recreational sports. And they really, they just don't have complaints commensurate with the way the x-ray looks. And then we have people that come in that have some kind of subtle changes. And they're in tremendous pain. So, you know, it, it, with your ankle, as long as your alignment's good, as long as you're functioning well, as long as you don't have tremendous swelling and any other kind of morbidity, uh, you know, we're going to wait. And hopefully we don't do it at all. But, you know, since these ankle joint implants have a certain longevity, uh, once they're put in, we, we kind of want to make sure that we 
hold off as long as we can. I want to ask you one last thing and then yeah. we'll wrap up, which is uh, if you had one message for people about their feet, um, what, what would it be? Um, I would think I would tell people that, um, you know, pay attention to the type of shoe gear you wear. Uh, make sure that you're not sacrificing uh, comfort and support uh, for fashion. I mean, look, we all want to look good. We all have certain um, functions we go to where maybe there's certain dress requirements. But in general, on a day-to-day basis, you should be wearing something that has good structural support proper arch contour, that's not an overly flexible shoe through the rear foot and midfoot uh, that fits you properly, that's not crowding your foot. So that ankle support. Ankle support, especially if you're someone who has a tendency already to maybe have some positional deformity of your ankle or you're flattening a bit. So that's really important. Did you, did any of this run through your mind when you heard about Prince? Because, I mean, it may be that he died because of his feet. You know, he was wearing these high heels for Mm -hmm. years because he's five foot two which were throwing his hips out of whack, which led to him having to get a hip replacement. And because he's a Jehovah's Witness, he put that off for a long time. He ends up addicted to prescription painkillers, perhaps. And now we're thinking this may be what brought him down. You know, is it too much of a stretch to say he may have died because of his feet? Well, I mean, I have two things to say about that. Yeah, I think it it probably played a role. I think, you know, if you look at the way he performed, which is just like incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, even if he was wearing uh, athletic shoes, some of the moves that he would do were just, you know, uh, really, you know, like like professional athlete type moves in Mm -hmm. terms of his dancing moves. So, I mean, he may have had some damage from slips and falls or other things he did, but certainly trying to do those things uh, in five-inch heels, uh, you know, is not of any benefit. So, Yeah. yeah. And just one, you just brought this up, and I've been having this conversation with a lot of people, you know, there's this heroin ec- epidemic in our country, and it's, right. ho- it's horrible, right? So there's no way to candy coat that. But I really, really feel that while there's definitely a responsibility uh, for the government, for physicians, for the healthcare system to monitor and be careful about how they use painkillers, narcotic painkillers, and there's definitely some healthy percentage of people who started down that road and then went to heroin because it's cheaper and it's accessible, and you know that's all true. But but this raging epidemic we have in this country goes way beyond just people having started with narcotic painkillers. And I think we do ourselves as a society a great disjustice in kind of candy coating, saying, well, you know, if we're just more careful how we give out painkillers during, you know, orthopedic or pain procedures, we wouldn't have this problem anymore. Let's face it. These drugs are on the street. They're readily available. And they're being pushed to a population of people who, for whatever reason, uh, need some form of escape. And it's so readily available. And once one kid does it or one friend you have does it, it feeds on itself. And this problem would certainly still be here even without the prescription painkillers. I think it's a magnifying factor. Yeah. But I think it's, it's kind of, I, again, I think everybody wants to paint these very neat black and white pictures that bring us from point A to point B. And, you know... We had a massive crack epidemic in this country. We have a massive um, amphetamine epidemic, and none of that has to do with... Well, I mean, to me, we're always treating symptoms and not underlying causes. You know, I I lost a brother to opioid abuse, and and it was because of chronic back pain due Mm -hmm. to an injury. But at some point, it may be that the actual pain, you know, the actual cause of the pain... Is, is solved and mm-hmm. the pain is mental. I mean, oh, I, yeah. I think there's a lot of underlying 
mental issues that go along with, you know, what leads to to prescription painkiller abuse, which right. may lead to other things like heroin abuse. But, you know, I think you're right. I think in terms of like, let's, let's, you know, it's just like when you go to the airport, the TSA is there because it's a dog and pony show. I mean, they right. may not be keeping you safe from anything. So right. this idea now we're going to limit prescription painkillers to seven days at a time right. is only a pain in the ass for someone like me who now has to ask my wife, Right. To go to the store every seven days instead right. of whatever it might have been previously, right. because I have a post-surgical thing that yep. has to that where and last time you know I was in a lot of pain. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of pain that goes along with this. Um, so yeah, I, I just I, f- I feel like we're not we never seem to really deal with underlying causes. Yeah, and and it's and, not that it's invalid. It's just that it, it when I watch the news coverage it, lately, it's almost like that is. The cause. Well, don't you think one of the solutions really is just sharing of medical records? Because my brother, like Rush Limbaugh, was doctor shopping. I found prescriptions from seven or eight doctors in his house in Florida. And if, you know, and it's very, you know, as a doctor, it's very hard to say to people, no, you don't really have pain. You just, you know, people can fake pain. Mm -hmm. They can maybe have psychological pain that has... Yep. physical results and mm-hmm. so you know when someone comes to you and says I'm in pain how are you supposed to say no you're not right you, can't, you know so I, well, this I, is I, this is the problem right so again our government has implemented an incentive system and a drive to push doctors towards electronic medical records and the way it was sold to Congress and the public was that wouldn't it be wonderful if you had electronic medical records that you would be able to take with you any place you went in the country and be plugged into a new system and instantly, but that's not how it works. Why? Because the electronic medical records companies are all independent private companies. They literally purposely build proprietary systems that don't talk to one another. Oh, and wow. and that, that whole myth of portability is just that, it's a myth. It's becoming a little better as we kind of refine some of these systems. But because my doctor just started the whole patient yeah, portal, like online yeah, thing. Yeah. You know? yeah, and and the problem is that rather than building extremely strong standards that these programs had to meet for portability, and doing making the first emphasis about electronic medical records be that we pr- uh, make a very robust system that works great, that actually improves documentation and is transportable because that should really be the main goal. We started down this whole public health initiative where me as a podiatrist has to collect all this information on every patient about body mass index and all these other things that supposedly someone someday is going to use to do studies in a, in a public health you know, uh, means, which is admirable, but it shouldn't have been the first thing that we made people jump through hoops to do. Yeah. So yes, it would be great in terms of you know, every time anybody writes a prescription, that being part of some centralized system. Um, but that, to me, really has to be done more at the pharmacy level, which at this point is a corporate level where they have the where to all in the computer systems. And, and it is to some extent. We will get messages, uh, faxed to us, called to us about, you know, we want to make you aware that this, doc, this patient was already given an opioid prescription, you know, five days ago by Dr. X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. New Jersey in particular has a website now that I'm registered with, that every physician has to be registered with. But the practicality it is that, that, you know, I'm in a busy practice and I'm seeing sometimes 30 people in a day. And when you come in uh, with a fractured foot and I'm going to give you a small 
script for some amount of opioids because you're really in legitimate pain. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily have the time to take 10 minutes out of my day to get on this system, type in all your information, and no one in my staff is allowed to do it because that's a HIPAA violation. So I physically, as the doctor, have to do that. So again, when you set up systems in such a way and make them so cumbersome that they're impossible to use, they, they lose a lot of their utility. So... Um, but yes, we, we need to do a much better job of, of having all these types of records be really portable. And it's not just painkillers. It could be things as innocuous as a non-steroidal drug like naproxen. Mm-hmm. And you find out that someone else already gave the patient meloxicam. And now if the patient, especially if it's an elderly patient maybe, and is not too aware of what they're taking, they're taking two non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which you know are going to rot a hole in their stomach and cause potential kidney problems, and on and on and on. So, you know, there's there's definitely a need for that, and it has improved, but it needs to improve further for sure. Uh, I appreciate you taking all this time to yeah, stand and talk. No problem. It's been great. I guess I'll, I'll see you on May sixth. Yeah. Is the next time. I have so much here. This may become a two-parter, but uh, thanks again to Dr. Thomas Azzolini of Hoboken, and uh, I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate being here. I want to say thanks again to Dr. Thomas Azzolini for joining me for these past couple of Aerial View shows. And as always, you could find me online at aerialview.me, and I will see you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.